0: Welcome to Writers Talking, the podcast where we take writers and readers behind the scenes, sharing the stories within the stories. No scripts, no filters, and no holds barred as we talk about what really happens for writers as they write, edit, publish, and promote their work. Hi, I'm Anjanette Fennell, agent, editor, and writerly mentor who's worked with hundreds of writers to break through their creative challenges to uncover the stories they feel compelled to share. Now, let's get talking. Ali Parker is a Japanese-Australian author and screenwriter with a background in script editing and script coordinating. Her debut historical fiction novel, At the Foot of the Cherry Tree, is a novelization of the true story of Australia's first Japanese war bride, Ali's grandmother. She co-wrote episodes of crime drama series Jack Irish, romantic thriller series Secret Bridesmaid's Business, and mystery telemovie series Ms. Fisher's Modern Murder Mysteries. Her credits as a script editor and coordinator include Irreverent, Jack Irish series 1, 2, and 3, Shantaram, Secret Bridesmaids Business, Ms. Fisher's Modern Murder Mysteries, Ride Like a Girl, Sunshine, Please Like Me series 4, and Utopia series 1 and 2. How are you going on this crazy promo tour? Uh, what's it What's it been like?
1: I mean, it's been amazing. I Yeah, I really have enjoyed it so much. And to be able to spend time with people who've read the book or want to read the book, who are really excited about the characters, who I have such a strong connection with. Yeah, yeah it's, it's kind of really amazing to see the reaction that everyone's had to it. It's been really beautiful. Well, there were a couple of things
0: that... Really jumped out at me. Number one, reading your bio. And then I'm really keen to dive into a little bit about this fictionalizing something that, again, very personal for you. And I thought that's fascinating how we balance it. But you're balancing, as far as I'm concerned, three things, which is one, moving from script writing to long form. And then number two, this you're talking about characters, but more so than anybody else. I mean, characters can live in our minds as real people, but these really are (laughs) real people. So maybe even just, we'll start with maybe what's the easier one and a little bit process driven, which is how did you find moving from writing some really, really well-known scripts to writing long form? Can you talk to me a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. Well, it certainly wasn't easy, <laughs> but, I mean, uh, the process of this book was that I actually wrote At the Foot of the Cherry trees a screenplay first. It was a feature okay. film first, right. and that was always my intention with it was to get it on screen somehow. I started researching it properly in 2018 and then started writing the script in 2020, which was yeah. not great timing to be picturing anything <laughs> <laughs> in terms of screen things. And so um, while I had a little bit of interest from people Everyone was just passing on everything because no one wanted to take on anything new. And it's a very ambitious story and a really ambitious yeah. project. So it's a big ask, especially in a, a stage of of time when things are there's a lot of question marks over what's gonna happen and where things are gonna end up. So mm. I did have some interest, but ultimately they passed. And I just had this thought of, well, I think there are two ways that I can approach this now, which is I can Spend ten years, maybe, trying to raise twenty million dollars to make a feature film. By which case, I'll probably need thirty million dollars, <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah, because inflation, or because everyone seems to be asking about projects based on existing IP, basically adaptations of books. Yeah, I could adapt the screenplay into a novel, get the novel published, make it a huge bestseller because you know it's that easy. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. then get the novel optioned for screen. Yeah, And then if that last step never even happens, if the novel n- does never make it to screen, at least the book is still out there. And for me, yes. the most important thing with this story was getting it out there and having it remembered because I feel like it's a really important part of Australian history that was being forgotten. And yeah. as, you know, the generation that it, it happened within starts to pass away and it starts to slip out of living memory, I really wanted it to be remembered mm-hmm. and so I was like well even if a screen adaptation never happens I've at least got the book and the books out there and anyone can find the book forever now so so yeah so that's kind of how I approached it but yeah the it wasn't a straight adaptation from the screenplay because the screenplay it was 120 pages and a book is yeah. like 330 yeah <laughs> <laughs> there's quite a lot of material that a I lot more filling in screenplay. yes yeah so I did, you know, a lot of research and read a lot of things and, and kind of immersed myself in that period of post-war history. And something that I realized pretty quickly from listening to radio interviews that my grandparents had done or reading newspaper articles from the time or even more recently is that my grandmother's story was often not told from her point of view oh, wow! it was usually yeah. it was very dominated by my grandfather which makes sense he's the husband he's the one who can speak fluent English in a white patriarchal society but I really felt the lack of my grandmother's story mm. and so that's how the decision to make the book Jewel point of view came around because I really wanted to make sure that it was balanced but also because they spend so much time apart Right. it would have made it really difficult if I was only in one point of view to then explain I guess in like we call it backfill in in tv but like I guess just in summary what Cherry's been yes. doing or Gordon's been in Australia and then so that was basically a lot of the newer stuff that went into the book that's not necessarily in, in the screenplay is a lot of uh, Nabucco and Cherry's chapters although there are some parts that are scenes that were in the screenplay but they're, they're fr- from her point of view as opposed to one or the other yeah it was it was a really interesting process trying to figure out just prose because in screen in screenplays you're writing things with a kind of you're you're trying to be as brief on the page as possible but convey yeah. as much as you can and then in yeah. books you have to you have to spell everything out because literally the have, opposite yeah, right? yeah you, you don't have visual
0: aids yeah yeah, yeah. well I think, and I'm biased, but I would think that actually exercising that muscle on the other side would help you eventually for screenwriting as well. If you hadn't listened to a past episode I've got with Rachel Morgan, we talk about the difference between Mm -hmm. those two and what she's expressed. And sort of what you're expressing too, now that you've opened this up for yourself, is that sometimes, and especially in creativity, we need a break from the way we've been doing it and this way you can sort of stretch those muscles on the one side when you're frustrated over here and then vice versa like this is too much and going back and forth I think it's really telling and I think this happens a lot this it's it's a creative endeavor too where we as creators want to see a certain project out a certain way this is how we'd imagined it but knowing that in the practical world when we're looking to get funding or support that sometimes being a little bit more flexible with the path can sometimes help it. So it's sort of the, in the woo woo, it would be, you just worry about the what, not the how. And that's what you were saying. You know, the, what was I want this story out there. And especially I want much more of Cherry's story and I'm biased by women's stories. I will say, I always want the women's perspective and not to say that Gordon's part of the story wasn't equally heartrending, but I see so much of that perspective that it's easier to glide over it. Whereas mm-hmm. Cherry's was much more moving to me rather than someone telling me this is how it happened, living with her as it happened.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting because I feel like looking at it now, Gordon is much more plot driven. Because he, I guess, has the the aim. He has the main story goal, which is get Cherry to Australia. That's the goal. And then Cherry becomes the more emotional counterpart to that. Because I ask people now at events, because I'm always really curious about this. I'm like, who's your favorite character? If they've said, I read the book and I loved it. And I'm like, yeah, who's your favorite character? And nearly, I reckon, 80% of the time, people say, Cherry. Yeah. which I think is really beautiful and really interesting and I I feel so honored that I've been able to give her story back to her in that way as well like it's the story of the first Japanese war bride to come out to Australia but for so long the narrative was dominated by other men right. <laughs> and so it's I feel really blessed that like it's literally like the book is named after her yeah. at the foot of the cherry tree is the English translation of her Japanese surname. And so I I feel very fortunate to be able to do that for her and give that to her. And then usually the other 20% of people say Charlie. Which okay, yeah, easy.
0: yeah, well, <laughs> look, he's very, and I guess that makes me feel better because so often too, women's writing in general is belittled as mm. being too sentimental. But the truth is, as humans, we want to connect mm. and we don't connect intellectually. There has to be something that moves us. And that so therefore that connection is on a deeper level, I would say like the heart level. And that's what you provide with Cherry's story and Charlie's story, like, and how quickly a child can can switch. I mean, honestly, even just the introduction of Charlie, so it doesn't surprise me at all, but even in his introduction, you get it straight away because you're sharing about How with children, even if language is a barrier and for children, not necessarily, even if they have the same language, being able to express things in in a certain way, but going off all of these, well, number one, Gordon, having so many siblings and being Mm -hmm. able to, you know, all things being equal, what does a kid usually want? What are the things that usually bother them? And being able to connect at that level and how quickly Charlie's whole energy changes, right? And then the surprise, someone else entering scene, and I, again, I'm very visual anyway. <laughs> but that's how I see it: entering scene and saying, "Everything's changed. What happened? How, like, what does he speak English? How did you know all this stuff?" And it's no, because we're we're going to the heart of matters and thinking from a human perspective rather than oh, oh just being really sentimental and yeah. I don't think that's a problem. It's not a flaw or a character defect. And the feedback you're getting is really heartening to me as well, because I think that's right. (laughs) that's that's what we're there for is to see different people's perspective not thinking it through and you're right plot is often what the construct we put on top that that can provide pace and like some logic or you can tweak it like they're tools Mm. whereas underneath that story it's all what's happening in the in-between space yeah
1: absolutely yeah yeah And I mean, it's so interesting because I was really aware that I could write a really sentimental and almost romanticized version of what had happened. But in approaching it, I realized that that was actually doing the story a massive disservice. Mm. And I didn't want my characters to be perfect, because they weren't perfect. They're not perfect people. No, no person is perfect. And so while it would have been really easy to have made Gordon like a flawless, faultless man, like he makes mistakes. He's still a young man. He's like yeah. in his early twenties yeah. and he's <laughs> yes. in his teens goes to yeah. to Japan. And so I really wanted to. balance that out and you know in in a similar way to Cherry she goes through so much and she doesn't think that she's brave which blows my mind because like that was her whole thing she never really thought she was that brave she just she just endured and actually her strength and resilience to endure is actually what makes her so incredible as a character and as a person Mm. and yeah it was just it was a really interesting I just had this moment where I went oh yeah Yeah. actually I can't make these people like faultless and making all the correct decisions all the time they need Mm. to have a little bit of light and shade because that's what makes them interesting as characters
0: well and that's what makes them truthful so this Mm. is a beautiful segue into that other part which is fictionalizing memoir which Mm -hmm. I'm a huge proponent of, especially for people if they're writing self-centered memoir rather than biography, right? Because it can be too challenging sometimes looking at ourselves with the lens of creating light and shade. There's that natural protective part in us where we don't want to tell the truth, but the truth is the thing that actually, without being sentimental, that's what moves people, Mm -hmm. seeing the truth of it. It's a very like Ernest Hemingway thing telling the truth. And whilst I don't like, again, as somebody who's a perfect example of don't take all of them, don't, you know, not a perfect person, but with some really beautiful lessons. So how did you manage that? Well, I would even start further back. How did you decide that fictionalizing it would be the best way of being able to open it up as opposed to just trying to straight tell the story as you knew it?
1: It was something I always wanted to do as fiction. I had a few people suggest that I do a documentary about it, but for me, I felt like there wasn't enough truth, which sounds weird, but yeah. I, I I, couldn't... My grandfather had already passed away when I started seriously thinking about it, so I, I didn't have his memories to rely on. It was all going to be secondhand. Mm-hmm. Memories from like radio interviews that he'd done or newspaper or TV interviews that he'd done in the past. And so without him... I knew it would be harder to speak to my grandmother because she didn't really like to talk about things on the record necessarily very often. And I just knew that there was so many things that I would have to fact check, which were anecdotal, and I would never be able to fact check them. And so they would never actually sit in a memoir or a biography style project. And and also my background is fiction. And I know that I can tell a really good fiction story. And I mean, ironically, a lot of the book is still based on truth like yeah. it is actually based on the story still like you know the, the introduction of charlie is the perfect example that's how gordon and charlie met that's not yeah. fictionalized at all and when gordon and Nabucco met that's like i call it family myth like that's one of the stories that we all know of how grandma and grandpa met yeah and and i wanted because I felt like I had a big responsibility to the family as well to, mm. you know, tell this story in a way that they also could be proud of and and could kind of hold it up as saying this is my mom and dad, this is my grandma and grandpa, this is whoever. You know, I didn't want to let them down. So there was that kind of added, not pressure so much because I knew that I was going into it for the right reasons and mm. I wasn't going to necessarily portray anyone in a super negative light and anyone that I did portray in a super negative light they are totally fictional but they're based on real attitudes and real people but yes without yeah. being exactly those people but yeah I really wanted to I don't think I ever really thought about it too hard as a piece of non-fiction whether that's documentary or memoir or biography simply because I just if if I'd been doing it while my grandfather was still alive and well I think that would have been maybe a different approach that I would have taken but because he wasn't and I think there's also something about the nature of fiction, the nature of novels that have a wider audience. Yes. And so that was also like something in the back of my mind because I did want this book to reach a wide audience. I didn't necessarily want to make the readers narrower right. by doing it as nonfiction. And I think it's a harder sell actually as nonfiction because what do you call it? It's not really war Fiction, a war non-fiction it's not really a war story because the war is kind of over by the time it all really starts mm. so then it becomes post-war and then that's a really 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 niche non-fiction market but as a piece of historical fiction you know like that's the beauty of historical fiction, in, right? Yeah. Yeah, Like, yeah. it's such a broad genre that no one really – you don't really care about the time period that you're in necessarily. But what's interesting is that apparently there's been a lot – there's been a big spike in that post-war period. Like, people are yeah. moving away from the actual fighting of World War II now, and people are kind of oh. interested in sort of what happened next. So yeah. I sort of hit a good market here. but. <laughs> I think as as fiction, it just becomes a lot more broad, and so you hit a wider audience, and it becomes more accessible for people as well. So, and I, that you know, that was as I said, I really just wanted to make sure the story was remembered in some way. Yeah. And so for me, that was a really important element of that as well. I
0: think the fact that you've got your experience, and what it sounds like you're saying there too, is that you honour the story or story. Above, I guess, genre specification, but you're also your natural choice of going into something that's fiction is going to support your other goal, which is to elevate the, you know, your grandmother's story, which is the female perspective, which is told less. And you're right, when we're looking at nonfiction, there are fewer women who are like, you know what I feel like going out to buy today. Is nonfiction about a post-war story, not to say they aren't there, but again, if Mm. we're talking about generalization and you in particular seem to have this beautiful mix that I'm really appreciative of, of understanding the truth of the marketing and business side, along with how do I fit what my goals are within the world we're living. And to be perfectly honest, that's beautifully reflected in the themes that you've got going in this story, which are at once a beautiful snapshot of what things were like and horrifyingly too similar Mm -hmm. to things that we're still dealing with, which feel like let's just put on blinders. Oh, haven't we moved past it all? That was in the past. (laughs) And I think the beauty of bringing this up now is if we don't look at it and, and maybe share more about history in a way that reaches more people, we are like that old adage. We're condemned to continue to retell these same horrific stories because we're, we're saying, no, 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 we've moved past it. Have we? Have we moved past it or yeah. do we need to start to? look at the things that we're doing that are supportive of those things, even just the white, like as a policy, and I come clearly not from Australia originally, but from a country who has had, especially during the war times, atrocious things, like horrific things that are difficult to comprehend. And yet they did happen. And if we don't look at them and learn from them, we're just going to go back there, right?
1: Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that's, I mean, I've always been a big lover of history anyway. Mm. And I think you can learn so much from looking at the past and learning about the past. And it just, it really does expand your thinking and your worldview. I mean, in the same way that travel does, like when you are exposed to a completely new culture, and you have to kind of unlearn all the things that you've learned. Yeah, I think there's something really powerful in looking back at what we've done and recognizing the mistakes of that. Mm. Because I mean, for me, The thing that gets me every time is I think about the Tamil family from Biluella, which Mm -hmm. happened a few years ago. And the parallels of that to my grandparents' story are – ridiculously close wow it's not about getting them to australia it's about keeping them in australia they Mm -hmm. both had two daughters it it took them four and a half years to convince the government to let them stay it was a changing government that changed the, the policy and allowed them to have visas like it is eerily similar and it was happening 75 70 years afterwards yeah and it just it's mistakes we don't need to keep making but Like the amount of people who have said, I never knew this history. I never knew anything Mm -hmm. about this. I had never thought about what Japan would have been like after the war. I had never thought about what a survivor of Hiroshima would have gone through. And like all of these things, and it's just like there are genuine gaps in our knowledge of history which can create empathy and allow us to move forward with, yeah, grace and knowledge of how not to do those same mistakes. And that, honestly, I think that view for me was really compacted by going to Hiroshima in 2019 and going to the the peace park and the peace memorial, because they tell their history in a particular way so that it will never happen again. Oh. And I think that had a huge, huge impact on me mm-hmm. in writing, particularly the section around my grandma's oh my grandmother God. at Hiroshima.
0: I on a, I can start crying right now. Like that <laughs> chapter, when she starts sharing her story, uh, yeah, sorry. And finished it. And it's the thing that sticks with me because it is, again, it's honoring the story, story, not being something that is made up story, mm-hmm. being a way to convey messages, we'll say, right. So you can yeah. do strict reportage, which isn't untrue, but doesn't have any nuance. Yeah, And the way that you share that particular story should move anyone because it is the human experience and you can't imagine. So you immediately, all of the skills you've already got with writing seem to be pulled into that. It's incredibly visual. So, you know, when we have those stories or rather discussions around show versus tell, go out and get this book, people, (laughs) and read that chapter. If you want to know what it looks like to show rather than tell, that's it. And that would be a challenge too, to, to move from script writing where you know someone's going to show it. So you give Mm -hmm. a little bit of instruction, not too much, because you need to have everyone get their own personal part in there from the director to the, the actor and, and, you know, the, even the photography and all of that is doing part of the showing. But knowing how to show really well, because that change changes people's hearts. It's not just, oh, this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. Like, we're crawling around, like, I can't even say, and I don't want to ruin it for anyone, because you want to go into reading a scene like that, where you will get the maximum Impact, but it's not dissimilar to stuff, and not even the political part of what might be happening literally today in mm-hmm. another part of the world. There's no black and white. There's yeah. only horror and big feelings around it, right? But you so beautifully with that scene. So I'm not glad, but glad that you were moved so much when you went to that peace park, and that came with you, so that when you were writing the scene. I think that had a massive impact on how You shared that because it is like a massive moment. I don't know. It's not right in the middle, is it? It's sort of right in the front half. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, this is something. And so, this, so I can like catch my breath and get less less emotional for a minute. Let's talk a little bit about the structure, Mm -hmm. especially now that I know you wrote the screenplay first. How much did structure change? How much when you knew, because you knew the story and then you did research to sort of fill in gaps. But How much did it change in the change of format? Did it change much where you just get like, this is the best thing for story. This is like the hero's journey, blah, blah, blah.
1: Yeah, it didn't really change too much structurally. Ironically, I did like a massive cutting edit. I just cut out heaps before we sent it off to the publisher. And when the structural notes came back, it was, oh, can we have a scene like this and this and this? And I was like, oh, I I have all of these. (laughs) I'll just put them back in in a slightly different way. So that was really interesting. But yeah, Jen, like, I, I feel like if you were to put the... The screenplay in the book side by side it would run pretty similar with obviously just like bigger pauses between the screenplay scenes where other yeah. stuff happens in the book but yeah, I I feel like the majority of like almost every single screenplay scene would be in the book and in kind of roughly the same order. I always wanted to do it chronological. And at one point, someone suggested to me that I have not only dual points of view, but also dual timelines and add a modern day perspective, which I think is really interesting because I absolutely couldn't find a modern day storyline to go with it. And I think it actually sits really beautifully on its own as it is in its like 1945 to 1952 time capsule but I think that was more to do with like a reflection of what's happening in historical fiction at the moment more so than what was actually serving the story
0: yeah yeah yes that's so interesting look I would say I love the way it is now I can see why, but when we talk about a modern day thing, I think that you can do that, this is my own perspective, you can do that where the changes that are being made, it's not so much the external, it would be the internal. So it's really Mm. just a reflection of a change that someone needs to see, because yeah, you are hard pressed, unless you're talking about a total, like you just brought up, like, and I always totally obliterate the name, like Biloela, anyway- You've got similar situations, but you'd be bringing a totally different story in. you can't mm-hmm. do that. So it would have to be one of those things where someone in the modern day and without being an expert in historical fiction, as far as I'm concerned, that's actually what they're doing. Mm-hmm. They're having the modern day challenge being emotionally or transformatively reflective rather than the scenario is the same. It's like someone going Mm -hmm. back to, even if they do like, what have I seen recently too? Like they have three timelines and Mm. especially for women and each of them are going through something same. Hey, truth, you know, it's almost like a a spiral. You don't learn a lesson and then, Oh, that never happens again. Um, it's just in a different, construct or a different level or something, but I think leave well enough alone. Like he, <laughs> truthfully, you had so much, it, I think it would have been much more difficult. You would have added so many thousands mm-hmm. of words trying to weave something in where as it was, you were already having to cut things out or condense
1: them. Yeah. Does that? And I, I feel like as well, when you start to introduce another element, it stops becoming Gordon and Cherry story. And then it's yes. Gordon and Cherry and other characters' story. So I really wanted to, yeah, I mean, we've already talked about this, but I really wanted to give my grandmother a voice. And I felt like if I was going to have to make room for another storyline, another timeline, she would have been the one to have suffered. Yeah. And so, yeah, it, it was one of those things where someone suggested it and I was just like, I don't I can't work out how on earth I would even approach that. And I a lot of the historical fiction that I've read has all been set in that chronological timeline of the time for the characters. And yeah. I didn't feel the need necessarily to to bring it into modern day. But yeah, it was a really interesting suggestion that kind of made me pause. But yeah, structurally the they're quite similar documents, the manuscript and the, the screen book. I love
0: that. So just anyone, if they happen to be a producer at a production <laughs> company with a checkbook and they're ready, like we carry those around, uh, you know, feel free. It's ready. It's ready to go.
1: <laughs> I mean, I would probably probably change quite a lot now if I was adapting it to the screen, just because yeah. I think there's so much more beautiful moments in the book that I would really like to to put on screen now. But Isn't yeah, it's yeah,
0: you could. Well, and I guess that goes to to any story. Like the more you've got a story, just like if you've got a screenplay, you the more you hang out with something, and then you gain perspective, or a little bit of time away from it, and then you go back and you're like, oh my no, because we're always learning mm. and maybe discovering for us, and even for you, you knew that Cherry's story within this it was really important that you share her perspective, and as you go further the things that you think are more reflective of that are maybe things you would add more mm. to a screenplay. Mm. I, love I don't want to say it's like a living document, but recognizing that story doesn't end when you put a full stop and it goes to print, mm. you may decide like that's where it is for that time and then later, but we're always being enriched by more stories, either living them ourselves mm. or reading them or experiencing them Like, I like all the different ways that media can sort of influence it. I love that now that you're having that experience too, that writing the long form has actually informed some changes in the way that you would do a totally different sort of structure or not structure, but a totally different expression of it for the things that you find. Oh, that now I know that really resonates and I can see it more completely how it would be a scene. That's what I'm imagining anyway. Is that what you're talking about?
1: Yeah. And I think as well, it's the fact that I wrote the screenplay three years ago and I've changed a lot as a writer in three years. And and so even just that kind of knowledge, because you're always growing and and moving and changing as a writer, as you get older, as you have more life experience, all of those things, they come into play. And so like the Hiroshima scene is really interesting in terms of how that all, the evolution of that scene, because in the screenplay, there was very little of it Mm. because I was terrified to write it. And so- Um, In the screenplay, it's just like the very beginning, the bomb goes off and then basically she kind of rises up out of the ashes of her house and then we cut out of it and that's it. When I came to the book, I was like, well, all of my chapters are about 5,000 words long. This is like 2,000 words. I probably (laughs) can't do that. And so I just kind of, I just had to jump in and I just had to do it. And actually that whole, my grandmother's experience came together through anecdotes from about three or four different people who she told the story to over time so I got little bits and pieces from everywhere like I was like a little magpie for a long time (laughs) just picking up little family stories and anecdotes but from having a little bit more time and having more of those conversations with people and you know as people knew that I was writing the book the family you know the way got around the family people would offer them more which was okay really lovely and and yeah, like pretty much what happens in that chapter is essentially what happened exactly, almost exactly to my grandmother. The one thing that people always talk about is the walk that she did mm-hmm. from Hiroshima to Kure. And that was that was real. And um, that was something my cousin actually mentioned to me. She's like, did you know that after Hiroshima, grandma walked back to Kure? And I was like, sorry. sorry, what? Can you say that again, but slow? <laughs> um, and then I realized that then, yeah, I had a full chapter then. And that, of course, you know, obviously that also becomes the opening image to the book as well, that walk. And yeah. and it becomes so important. And, yeah, it, it was such an interesting thing. But I just had to, again, like I had this realisation that it's a privilege of me, it's mm. my privilege to skip over Hiroshima. Mm. And actually what I wanted this book to be was looking at history As it was, and I I don't think I mean there are like there are stories of Hiroshima, but it is so horrific that I think a lot of people don't like to tell that story for you know good reason. And it was really interesting because I submitted the full chapter once I'd written it, and I had no perspective on it. Like I was just like, I'm a mess. I've written this. I don't know. (laughs) I need feedback. Someone help and tell me what you think. And so I submitted it to a writing group I was part of at the time, and some of the the notes that I had on it. Actually, I didn't get much constructive criticism on it at all. People were just like, wow. <laughs> and I am yeah. like, okay. I don't know if that's about the writing or yeah, about the no, I get it. Yeah, I'm like, Yeah. I get yeah. It. There was one person who they just kept saying, wow, this is this is really heavy. This is really this is really dark. I'm really struggling to read this. And maybe you should undercut this. Maybe you should oh. Oh, I'm really struggling to get through this chapter. And I'm like, that's kind of what I want. It's a yeah. it's a war crime. It's one of the worst war crimes in history. I'm not going to make that palatable for an audience just because it makes them uncomfortable to experience that. Because I mean, that's the other beautiful thing you get with novels, is you are literally in the head of that character. Like you are literally in Nabuka's head while she is trying to grapple with this incredible, horrible, horrific moment in her life. And yeah, it should be uncomfortable. It should be deeply unpleasant. It should be all of those things. And it was a really interesting experience challenging myself in that way because I wouldn't usually write things that dark. But as soon as I realized that it was a way to remember and honor my grandma's experience there. Mm. Then I knew that I had to I had to do it right. And, yeah, it is interesting. Like a lot of people do talk about that chapter and how beautifully written it is. And I'm just like, I don't know. I black out when I go into it.
0: Even after, I was going to say there's some things you talk about, too, that are we'll go back to the human condition. So having worked with that many writers, writing through whether it's memoir or fiction, everything is based on truth, right? Mm -hmm. So even if it's quote unquote fiction, we're sharing it to move through something, our natural inclination. And if I'm reading a writer's work in progress, I can always see it very clearly. Even if I don't actually know their experience, I'm like, oh, we were just going here and now we've like taken a sharp left, you stopped writing. So there's this balance. There's knowing it's the natural human reaction, both as the creator of it, as well as the consumer of it to back away from things as a, as a reader, you have that choice if you want to. But as the writer, even if you ended up cutting it, this is my own hypothesis. Writing this entire book should be, you wrote all truth. And even if later an editor came through and said, oh, let's cut this. And I've done that with people. The heart of it, there's some alchemical transformation that happens in the work. As long as you have gotten yourself, even if it took you multiple days, like I can write a hundred words today Mm -hmm. and I can write a hundred words tomorrow. Like I can't go any deeper, but as long as you are fully present for the high levels of discomfort, pain, the confrontation of all of it, You could eventually cut that and whatever remained would actually still have that same vibe. It would be totally truthful. And sometimes that's the right choice. I couldn't tell you what those are offhand, but I'm sure that sometimes that's the right choice, but you had to come to it and be there. So like giving yourself permission to have it been hard. And especially in the screenplay version sort of reminds me, and this is a totally different scenario, but like in the whole Top Gun, the original version, and there were like reasons, you know, her, she was on another project. So her hair was a different color, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. The sex scene was like all in silhouette in the end. It really works. I mean, I feel Mm -hmm. like it's a little bit dated now, but, um, or it's just uncomfortable because I don't want to watch that guy anyway, but Mm -hmm. it was, it was all silhouette and it really worked. So that may be a creative choice later, but in the creation of it, you, you, You want it to be reflective of what happened. So you being brave enough to be there for that scene. And like you said, I think that's a really important point now more than ever. You have the privilege Mm. of closing your eyes to it. Your grandmother Mm. did not. She didn't Mm. get a choice. And and that is part of the whole reason for the book. We need to look at this stuff. We can't literally whitewash it with, but that didn't happen to me. So let's not look at it too closely. It was horrific. I know that much. In fact, you don't know. You don't know that much. So I agree with the reader, like that's deep and heavy. But I actually, even if I did, without my conscious mind knowing, skim over it, I knew all of it. I could feel it. And it was like, I'm not going to hurry through the chapter because that's the point of the chapter, Mm. knowing all of it. And I won't get the learning if I don't do the hard work. This goes to that idea around between a creator and an editor and maybe you make an agreement with the publisher they've got the end choice. blah 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 and I'm not saying that's not right but it's always really nice to have writers talk about feedback that they've gotten at different times and where they took it on board and where they said I see what you're saying and this stays yeah there's a reason for it
1: yeah I definitely had a few of those moments but I while I'm, I guess, a first time author, I'm not a new writer.
0: Yeah. And
1: so I, I am used to getting notes and I'm used to knowing what I want to do versus, you know, what the note is and what the note's actually saying. And yeah, there was one particular moment that was suggested to me in the edit to cut. And I was just like, no, nah, this is staying. But like, I didn't even entertain it for a second. I was like, no, that's a bad note. That's not, we're not doing that yeah and I think you know ultimately as an author you know your story the best and just because you're getting notes doesn't mean you have to implement all of them like they are suggestions at the end of the day if they come back multiple times maybe then you need <laughs> <You're> to like <laughs> wait a minute entertain yeah. a little bit but but that one I mean I'm not even sure why it was suggested now I can't really remember but I just remember looking at the note and just going oh no nah, that's not <laughs> next what's next <laughs> so yeah I think having the the confidence and the belief in your own voice and your own story and your own approach to your story, I think, is a real skill to have as an author. And I think it's something that maybe newer authors willing to be a little bit more flexible on. But, yeah, it is interesting to see the suggestions of what people are like, are you sure you need this? I'm like, yeah, no, that one I do need. That one I don't. Let's get rid of that. But that one I absolutely do need. Yeah, yeah isn't that? Well, and I love that, too, especially
0: from a younger Writer obviously accomplished, but I think having that center of saying these are the sorts of things that are around craft, right? Or even skill. Like we're not talking grammatical issues. We're talking about honoring. core of the story. And I don't know if it's like even Seth Rogen (laughs) or something saying the story is king. I would say story is queen. Like we honor that. And sometimes, and I have had these discussions with Rachel Morgan as well around getting those notes. I think Mm -hmm. that coming from a a screenplay perspective could be really, really helpful too for novel writers who it's, it's about being able to discern for yourself. And sometimes you only know when you get that note. Before that, you wouldn't know, do I need to keep it or not? Because it's almost like a bodily reaction, especially that one that you just said, yeah, not nah. like you knew instantly. Yeah. Where somebody else could get that same note. And for them, they're like, oh, you know, I was worried about that. And I'm not saying that their decision was more valid. It's just notes like that and getting them so frequently. Number one helps you build, we'll say a thicker skin, but I would just say a clearer uh, understanding of your own intention and where the genesis for some of the storylines or some of the perspective comes from, getting those notes so frequently helps you identify for yourself what's important, what's not. Taking that is an incredible... Oh, we talk about stretching and and exercising muscles. That's a beautiful one. Because Mm -hmm. one of the worst travesties in storytelling, any kind of writing is taking on too much, always deferring to somebody else Mm -hmm. in this sort of almost people-pleasing thing. Your story's gone. Now it doesn't affect anyone because you're just trying to please everyone. And now we don't have like, yeah, so whatever. It's now too vanilla.
1: I think one of the best skills you can develop as a writer, and I think this is also a creative as well, but just story instincts. Mm. Like I, I, I didn't have any formal training for writing at all. I am... I mean, I would say self-taught, but that's, you know, reading a lot of writing books and, you know, a lot of screenwriting books, but then a lot of books about writing theory and also doing courses and things like that, but not necessarily like academic, yeah. formally trained. And I think definitely the thing for me that I have noticed is it is, like you say, a bodily reaction. Like it's an instinct in my body where I'm like, we need to go here now. We need to go here now. And I'm a, I'm a big planner. Like I plot everything, but I still know what's missing? Sometimes I don't sometimes I need a big break and then I like, can yeah, say what's missing like
0: oh now I see yeah
1: but like you know when you when you really understand a genre quite well so like I'm this is obviously historical romance and so there's romance beats that I have to hit within that genre mm-hmm. and I wouldn't necessarily say that I've studied romance as a genre very closely like I've watched a lot of romance movies and rom-coms and I've read a lot of romance books but what you do when you consume all of that media you bank it and you remember it and your writing brain remembers it. And even if you can't necessarily be like, this is the beat that needs to happen now in terms of like, I don't know, whatever it is, but you can be like, oh, this is where they should kiss. And yes. I feel like when, when you know your characters well enough, they start to engineer those beats. Like yes. uh, the I'm working on my second book at the moment and I had the kiss, I had the kiss plotted and it was like, you know, two chapters away and suddenly these characters are coming together and I'm like that's what? too much chemistry what are you doing you're not you're not allowed to kiss yet you have to wait and then you know and but it was it kind of works as like a oh these are really new dawning feelings that I'm having for this person and and I'm now seeing them in a different perspective but it was just like that kiss two chapters away wouldn't have worked if there hadn't been like a slower realization towards that attraction and all of these yeah. things and that's a that's a rom- their romance beats and so yeah i think Honing story instinct and consuming craft. And like I am one of those weirdos who will like whenever I'm watching something on like Netflix or you know, watching a film or a a TV show or whatever, I will basically watch it and I'll be like, that's the midpoint. Everything's just changed. And I'll check and then I'll check and it will always be almost exactly halfway through. Like, yeah, that's the midpoint. I can understand my structure. And and you know, I when I come across a book that I really connect with, like The book that I think is a structural masterpiece is Babel by R.F. Kwong. I think it's one of the best structural books I've ever read. And so I bought a second copy to annotate it and so that I could go, this is foreshadowing, this is character, this is, and go through it. And like, I would never, I would never consciously make those decisions in my writing. Like this line that I'm typing right now is going to show me character But if I analyze other people's work and see how they put those beats together, my writing brain remembers it. And then I will just instinctively do that. And I think that's one of the best skills that you can hone as as a writer.
0: Oh my God. Ali, I could talk to you forever <laughs> because I am equally a story geek and I love watching these things. And I often use, even though we're talking writing and I talked writing to people, I'm often using like movies and TV mm. shows or even mm. series to show what the story arc looks like and why something works or why it doesn't, because I have the same belief. Absolutely. I would love to just put a pin in and say, you've got to come back on the podcast so we can oh, I'd love to. chatting about stuff. I would absolutely um, love um, and so then we can get a, a sticky beacon, hear more about your next project. But thank you so much for coming on today and talking about this absolutely incredible book that does a beautiful job of bringing truth in a way that is more accessible to more people so people seriously go out and get the book it's yeah you'll you'll be challenged with some of the chapters but you get all of the payoffs and if you're a story geek you'll love being able to you don't need to annotate it but you'll be able to see where certain things are working and why they do but it's been an absolute pleasure to chat today
1: no worries thanks so much for having me
0: Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Writers Talking. Join us next time for more Writers in Conversation as we delve into the writers' process, their passions, and a little bit about their books. Don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast player and follow us on Instagram at writers underscore talking underscore podcast.